Good evening, everybody. 40 years ago today, we got the reports that the white flag was flying over Port Stanley. Yes, the Falkland Islands had been liberated. It was the end of a 74-day conflict. It was a terrific victory for British military forces, albeit one that, of course, came at a cost, quite a big human cost. Um, and I wonder, today, looking back 40 years ago, we'll talk to men that were involved on land and the sea. Um, we'll look back and think, well, what did we learn from all of it? Did we learn anything from any of it? Do human beings ever learn anything? But we've got to try to learn things. Was it a failure of intelligence? Was our kit really up to scratch? And we look ahead to the shape of our armed forces today. What position are we in and what threats do we face around the world? But my big question for you at home is what have you learned 40 years on from the Falklands? Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, Lord Alan West of Spithead, former First Sea Lord, Chief of the Naval Staff, Security Minister under Gordon Brown. Uh, you, of course, were part of that task force that was very rapidly assembled, wasn't it, in, in 1982? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the feeling within the MOD, because the, the Chief of Defence Staff was actually in New Zealand, was that nothing could be done to recover the islands. Um, you know, Britain had been the sick man of Europe, in a sense, through the 70s. You know, people were depressed about things. Um, and there was a meeting held in Parliament just across the river there, um, at which the, uh, the Secretary of State for Defence and the Foreign Secretary uh, and the uh, MOD representatives were telling Margaret Thatcher there was no way that anything could be done. Yep. Henry Leach, the first Sea Lord, heard this was happening, rushed to Parliament in his uniform and was taken up there, much to the horror of the staff there, because you're not meant to be wandering around Parliament in uniform in case it's a coup. And he was taken into the room and Margaret Thatcher said, what are you doing here, First Sea Lord? And he said, ma'am, I understand you're discussing the invasion of the Falklands by the Argentinians. I'm here to tell you I can assemble a task force within four days to sail for the Falklands and we can recapture those islands. And then he, he always said, he shouldn't have said the next bit, but he did. He said, and I think we should or we'll be a different nation. Wow. And Margaret Thatcher, that was what she loved to hear. And she grabbed that and said, right. And the task force, the first two carriers sailed what, five days later? Quite yeah, amazing it was pretty to get that done. Yeah. Now, Leach is a great hero of all of this. And, yeah. and, and yes, the chinless wonders wanted to stop her, but they always want to stop us doing anything, yeah. don't they? So you were there, you were off on that task force, and I, you knew you knew the risk we were taking. I you? sailed slightly later because I just got back from the Arctic Ocean. I'd been up there doing exercises for about uh, two months, three months. I got back into Devonport with my gun broken because I'd been in a huge storm and it had damaged it. And as typical of Britain at the time, dockyard mateys came on, sucked their teeth, said, oh, this will take about 14 weeks to fix. Two days later, the Argentinians invaded, invaded the Falklands. Dockyard mateys came on board and said, we'll sort it in two days. Yeah. That's the difference with Britain when it really has to do something, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and they did that, but I meant I sailed slightly after the others, joined them in Ascension Island. Then I escorted the Canberra, uh, which had a lot of troops on board, a lot of Marines, and the Elk and the Norland, full of paras. Um, and I escorted them down to the Forks. Elk was just absolutely full of ammunition. I went and visited it. The, the naval officer was on board. All the merchant ships had a naval officer. He had a grey parrot on his shoulder to encourage them. But he said, if this goes up, sir, you don't want to be within five miles of us. So I told my officer to watch if there's an air attack to stay five miles away from Elk. Because there'd been a hell of a bag. But she survived the war, which was good. Five vessels. Were hit and sunk. What a shock it was for the nation, including the vessel that you were on. It was. I mean, I think. I think when uh, Sheffield was sunk, that was the first time many of the 
people realised this was a real war. I knew it was going to happen because I'd been up to Northwood. Margaret Thatcher had released two and a half billion from the reserve. And I knew what the Argentinians were like. And I thought there's going to be a fight. But most of the sailors didn't really think there would be. And I think this release of two and a half billion, by the way, if I may say today, because there are parallels with Ukraine. Yeah. Goodness me. The, anyway, Margaret Thatcher released two and a half billion at 1982 prices. This government doesn't seem to be doing anything about more money for defence. Anyway, no, we'll come issue. back to that. We'll that's come back to that. Issue. But you're on um, HMS Arden. Yeah. You're hit. Well, we, I, we led the task force, in the amphibious force, into Falkland Sound. Uh, we went down, because I had a long-range gun and I was good at naval gunfire support, we were detailed off to go and support the SAS, who were doing a diversionary raid. We fired 170 salvos into Goose Green, destroyed five Picaras on the runway, which stopped them taking off, destroyed most of their napalm, which is illegal, but we didn't want to drop to our troops. And we let the SAS withdraw safely because we were bombarding. Then we went into the middle of Falkland Sound where these air raids really started building up. There were 63 air attacks on the first day, 17 against my ship. We were straddled by bombs. We were hit by bomb which went straight through the ship. We had bombs in us that were unexploded and, and several went off. And as the day went on, so we took more yeah. and more damage. Um, and finally, I lost all power and I was running towards the coast and, uh, and I made some men run up the folks. We released the anchor and so the anchor bit and we were on a single anchor, leaning over, on fire, sinking by the stern. I talked to some of my heads of department. It was quite clear that the ship was likely to explode at any moment, like Antelope did, the famous Ooh. pictures. Um, and so I made the decision to abandon ship, which is a very difficult decision because as a captain, you know, your ship is your grey mistress. You spend more time with no, her absolutely. than you do with your yeah. wife. No, it was and, uh, and you had to make that decision. But I'd lost 22 of my boys already. I had 30 injured. And I knew I'd just lose more of my men, uh, and uh, and so I made that. It was a very hard decision. When I when we sort of, I got off the bow onto another ship, I I didn't want to go, and I was dragged off by a couple of guys because it's the last one to get off the ship. Because I just couldn't face going. And I have to say, my wife, who I'm sure didn't mean it, when I got back, she said, shouldn't you have gone down with your ship? Which actually <laughs> reinforces a bit. But I know she didn't mean it really. Did we learn much from it in terms of the navy, the equipment? And you mentioned the fact that I, we're, you feel we're seriously underfunded today, don't you? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we are seriously underfunded. We did learn a lot. We learned a lot about, relearned lessons about firefighting, about yeah. damage control, things like that. I think one of the lessons that I, is, is good for today is that one of the reasons we know from all the documents the Argentinians invaded was because we decided to pay off Endurance, which was the ship we had in the South yeah. Atlantic, for a saving of £16 I know, million. Pounds. I, know, I know. The final war cost us overall £6 billion and 255 dead people. You need to invest in defence because dictators spot what you spend. Putin has seen us over these years cutting defence. He's seen Europe even worse than us. And I the Chinese to too. Uh, the Chinese watch this as well. Although the Chinese tend not to want to fight wars, strangely. They think wars are so unpredictable. Yeah. Um, that's why I don't believe they'll go and invade Taiwan unless things go wrong in China. But the big lesson, I guess, is be prepared for anything. You've got to be prepared. And also, we needed aircraft carriers. We could not have done it without the aircraft carriers. And we've now got aircraft carriers, thank God. But have they got all the aircraft for them? No. The, the weapon system for an aircraft carrier is its aircraft. Well, the last aircraft carrier we lost didn't have its aircraft with it. That's why we lost it. No, maybe the government ought to pay attention to this. I think they're wise words. Lord West, thank you for Not joining me on this anniversary. Now, up at the National Arboretum today, there has been a remembrance service. The Prime Minister's been in attendance, and GB News's Mark White is there now. 
Well, Nigel, good evening. Uh, as far as the lessons learned are concerned, the Prime Minister was actually asked, as Prime Ministers often are on the anniversary of the Falklands War, whether Britain could ever mount such an endeavour again. Now, he was unequivocal. He said that he believed that the UK could do that, that uh, in technology terms, uh, the UK military had advanced significantly. Uh, he pointed to the two new giant aircraft carriers, HMS Queen Elizabeth and HMS Prince of Wales. And indeed, uh, the innovation and uh, the development of these carriers came out of lessons learned from the Falklands War. The Invincible class carriers uh, that was down there along with HMS Hermes were three times smaller than the current aircraft carriers we have now. Of course, Lord West said there, we need enough aircraft for them, uh, but providing they get eventually enough enough aircraft for them. Uh, one of the lessons is CAP, Combat Air Patrol. Uh, during the Falklands, it was concerns that the decks were just too small. They didn't have enough jets to have an effective combat air patrol up all the time trying to protect the task force. So that's one of the lessons learned that the Prime Minister believes, coupled with uh, other aspects in the way in which the military has developed over the years, would mean that we would be able to uh, mount such an endeavour, even though compared to then 48 frigates and destroyers the Royal Navy had, now we have 19. Uh, the British Army had a standing army of 160,000 in 1982, Nigel. It is now half that size. But, as I say, the Prime Minister remains optimistic. As far as the event here today is concerned, of course it was poignant. Lots of tears, people remembering back some 40 years ago. There was a little light relief, a little light moment towards the end when the Prime Minister was actually speaking. In his speech, there was a rather mistimed flyby uh, of helicopters, uh, which uh, rather ruined the end of his speech. This is how that unfolded. I think the Prime Minister actually really took that uh, in good spirit. Uh, he had a, a chuckle with the others uh, before ending his speech. But uh, for people here, it was really a day to come together to remember those events, which of course incredibly were four decades ago. And there was the main commemoration here uh, with 2,800 people invited here by the Royal British Legion and a number of smaller events all around this incredible National Memorial Arboretum and also a memorial taking place in Port Stanley that was beamed live into the memorial here, which again was very poignant as we had local school children in the Falklands seeing just how indebted they were to those that risked their lives and gave their lives to liberate their islands. Well, Mark White, thank you very much indeed for that report. And it sounds like quite a, quite a powerful, perhaps even emotional service there today at the National Arboretum. Now, all sorts of different people serving as soldiers, sailors, airmen have different memories of what took place 40 years ago and indeed the homecoming. And we spoke yesterday to Lieutenant Commander Paul Massey on his return to Portsmouth. He was 21 years old. He set off on HMS Hermes. 
He witnessed Sheffield being hit, 20 men being killed, the first Exocet attack that we talked about a moment ago with Lord West and a real genuine shock. Um, and he also talks in this little interview about what the homecoming was like back in Portsmouth. The only thing that uh, I would say that I've carried for 40 years relates to July the 21st. Uh, and that was when we returned and we're on the Hermes and we sailed in. And we were anchored off the Isle of Wight the night before on the 20th, so close you could smell the fish and chips uh, ashore. And I thought, God, it's good to be home. But then sailing in, uh, we met Margaret Thatcher. She flew on board and um, she shook my hand and said to me, you've done very well, uh, but remember what your families have gone through. And that stuck with me for 40 years. That wasn't Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister or the politician. That was Margaret Thatcher, the mother. Uh, and I've never forgot that. But then as we sailed in, the ship was surrounded by a flotilla of boats. And then we got to old South Sea Common and we were amazed how many people had turned out. We never expected that, uh, that, that really blew us away. But then a wall of noise hit you. And I must admit, uh, I began to tear up at that. And I thought the two guys we'd lost on the squadron, and I thought, I wish they could be here, A, to see that. Uh, and then you got under control. And then as we sailed into Portsmouth Harbour, um, and past the castle and the railway station and the jetty was close where we we're about to dock. The crowd was phenomenal. And this was all families of people on board. And I knew my mother and father, my grandmother and my younger brother were in that crowd. And then the band, the Royal Marine Band, which I consider to be the best in the world, started playing Land of Hope and Glory. And I cried like... Um, like a baby and um, even now 40 years on if I'm on a cruise uh, with my family on a sail away party they pl always play Land of Hope and Glory and it's some kind of trigger um, because I just have tears rolling down my face and my wife will turn and look at me and just smile and nod because she knows Well, some very powerful memories there from Paul Massey. Now, we've talked about the Royal Navy. We've talked about the loss of five ships during the campaign. What about the army? What about the army? What about the infantry? How did they get on in the Falklands War? And did we learn any lessons from that? Well, Major General Chip Chapman was a lieutenant and platoon commander in Tupara, the parachute regiment during the Falklands campaign, fighting in the Battle of Goose Green. Um, and the second battle was Wireless Ridge, I think, wasn't it? Chip, looking back on it all, I mean, Parachute Regiment did take some heavy casualties. Yeah, we did. But uh, if you look at the governing weapons in war, people will say, what was the decisive weapon in the Falklands? Was it the Exocet, if they'd had a few more? Or was it the uh, Sidewinder for all the Harriers? But actually, from our perspective, the decisive weapon was camaraderie. It was that vertical cohesion between leader and lead and horizontal cohesion between the blokes which enabled them to get up and go and close with the enemy and do what they had to do and if you could bottle that camaraderie and cohesion that we had amongst the infantry 
which sustained them despite the casualties, then you would have a war-winning team mm. anywhere in any business or industry in the UK or around the world. In some ways, what you did, yomping across the islands, carrying a kit with you, um, fighting and quite a lot of hand-to-hand, -hand, close quarters fighting that took place, taking the ridges and all of those things. I mean, in some ways, it was very old-fashioned warfare. Or is that actually how warfare has always been and always will be to a certain extent? Well, there's two parts to this. The first one is the nature of war doesn't change. So it is visceral, people get killed, and often it is close, co close combat, which we see in Ukraine in the urban cities. The character of war does change. So in 1982, we had the land, the sea, and the air domains. Now they add cyber and space to that. So there are five domains of war. But we are seeing that the primacy of all this is that man doesn't live in the sea, he doesn't live in the air, he lives on the land, and if you're going to be decisive and take territory, the geography which matters to people, you can only do that with bayonets on the ground. Mm. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed, and that's what we did. You can't cyber your way out of warfare. What has changed, it seems to me, looking, and particularly at what's happening in Ukraine, is the tank, which has been this incredibly powerful weapon since it was rolled out at the Battle of Combray in 1917. Suddenly the tank in Ukraine is looking to be a rather weaker weapon, isn't it? I think it's too premature to say that, and I think I say that from the perspective that, like all these things, we talk about an all-arms battle. And the all-arms battle is that you need tanks in conjunction with infantry, with air defence, with your engineers, and if you haven't got those, you cannot move. That is why, for example, the Galahad, when it was hit along with the mm. Tristan at Fitzroy, the air defence was not on the ground operating. If it had been there, we wouldn't have had those casualties. So if you're not operating together, and if you've got a vulnerability across all those parts of infantry, armour, engineers, artillery, you're going to be vulnerable. That's why you need a balanced force. And if you don't, you're going to be caught out. That's why the Russians, in terms of their tanks, were caught out. They had very, very few dismounts, and that's why they're struggling to take ground, because their tanks have been vulnerable to the anti-tank systems, which we've provided for them along with the Americans, the Swedes, and many other nations. Have we learned from the Falklands, from Iraq, Afghanistan? It depends what level you talk about. Uh, have we learned strategic lessons? Well, of course, the Chilcot <coughs> report in 2016 would be something that you would look at from Iraq and say, that's your template for the future in terms of the strategic decisions you need to take. At the tactical level, I would argue that the training for the soldiers at whatever arm they're in is still really, really good, and you've got a motivated force. The level in between, which is the operational level, our generalship, whether that's good yeah. or bad, I don't know, because since the Falklands, of course, we've only really been a bit part player, and I mean that in the sense that we will only probably ever be part of a coalition. There'll be very, very few operations well, like the Falklands while we all go by I ourselves. mean, when you went to the Falklands, there were 160,000 soldiers in the British Army. It's now 80,000. Do you agree with Lord West that we've cut too far? Yeah, I, I think we, we have. So you would always say that from the Army's perspective, that the Army is always with a volunteer force, which is very, very expensive, that they're always too big in peacetime and too small in war. Yeah. They're actually too small in peacetime and too small in a future war now. And looking back, Chip, you know, there you are, Lieutenant, in charge of your platoon in those two battles in the Falkland Islands. When you look back, what do you feel? 
Well, I'm very, very proud of what both my men did and what Two Para did and what the whole force did. Um, I remember those who died. I respect all the services and wider than that. The Merchant Navy made a significant contribution, GCHQ in terms of the SIGINT that they uh, provided. But I also reflect that I was very, very lucky. I lived to see the dawn of a new day on the 14th of June 1982 after a battle on the night of the 13th. And I, you know, I'm, I'm blessed that I did that and I. I love the fact that I was able to do that when so many people did not. Chip Chapman, thank you very much indeed for coming on and sharing your personal experience of the Falklands. Well, one thing that led to the Falklands War was, it seems to me, a gigantic failure of intelligence. We'll discuss that failure of intelligence and we'll ask, what are the threats now being faced today, not just by the Falkland Islands, but by the world at large? So what have we learned 40 years on from the Falklands conflict? Some of your thoughts coming in. Stuart says that we should always be adequately equipped to defend our lands and our people. Douglas says we obviously haven't learnt a great deal. We get invaded every day with assistance from our own lifeboats and border force. Strong stuff there from Douglas. Frank says that the left still support Argentina. And John says that we can't trust Argentina or the French. We won't get any help from our European allies ever and don't rely on America to side with us well I think that all depends who the president is really um, but I won't I'm not going to get too political today but we will come back to that theme of our relationship with America and in particular with this current president now leading up to the Falklands War there was what I thought was clearly a pretty dramatic failure in intelligence. How bad was it? What have we learned from it? Philip Ingram, MBE, former colonel in British military intelligence and defence journalist, joins me. Uh, the withdrawal of HMS Endurance. Just, I mean, I don't know what the Foreign Office thought they were playing at. Did, did they want to get rid of the Falkland Islands? What the hell was going on? Well, well, I think a lot of them probably didn't even know where the Falkland Islands were. You know, I think whenever the conflict started, there was this clamour around to try and find actual maps of the place, which showed how important it was from a strategic perspective. Uh, and this is often the failure whenever people don't look at the wider implications of decisions that they're making on uh, you, when it's money related uh, and what that therefore may cause. And I think um, Admiral West, Lord West, highlighted it you know, perfectly, you know, a few million pounds um, to do, that actually cost us billions of pounds in the long yeah. run. Yeah. Have we learned from that? I mean, I mean is, is, our, is our intelligence better than it was? Are the Foreign Office more on the ball than they were in 1982? Mm. Our intelligence is much better. Um, we've got a much more joined up intelligence and we can get it to where it needs to go quickly. You know, some of the intelligence took um, over eight hours to get on, on a flash signal and flash mm. is immediate to get down to the task force um, in the Falklands. Uh, we can now get stuff there instantly and, and it's fused together in a much better way. Um, but given the amount of information that we've got, given everything else, does it make us better? I'd argue probably no. We've identified lots of lessons, mm. um, but whether we've actually learned from them or not, um, I, I'd, I'd say you, in, in modern warfare, we haven't learned as much as we should have done. No, well, that's perhaps a lesson all through history, actually, that we don't always learn as much as we should. Yeah. Now, in terms of the Falkland Islands today, mm. our military presence is very, very different to yeah. what it was. Around about one and a half thousand soldiers based there permanently. Um, 
a variety of Royal Air Force planes, one naval vessel. So I, I think we probably can say quite safely that the Falkland Islands are quite safe now. Oh, they are. Yeah, we, we've got a, a good strategic overwatch from an intelligence perspective. The soldiers, sailors uh, and um, air persons, I don't know what the latest term is for them, um, are, are, are keeping it safe. But we can also fly aircraft strategically from the UK to the Falklands, which we couldn't do easily at the time. The, yes. the Vulcan bombers was a massive operation. Uh, and those aircraft, we can fly our fighter jets you know, from the UK down with lots of refuelling uh, and, and everything else. So we're in a much better position. And now with two aircraft carriers with the most modern um, weapon systems on board, albeit we don't have enough, as Lord West again um, yes. highlighted. Yes. Um, we have the ability to make sure that um, it can never happen again. Yeah, which is a good thing, clearly. Yeah. Although the Argentines have never given up their claim to a group of islands that they've never inhabited. Well, exactly, and they've never given Bizarre. it up. It, it is, but actually, you, when you look at the politics behind it, and again, people forget the politics, you know, there's the, um, the treaties that govern the um, Antarctic, um, and nobody's supposed to own any bit of the Antarctic. But if the treaties ever fell into abeyance, then you know, the traditional way of working the ownership out is you look at the landmass that you own, you draw a line along that, you take that down to the South Pole and you own that triangle. <coughs> the UK would own a massive triangle would compared do. to Argentina yeah. um, you know, with the Falklands, yeah. South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands. Final thought on all of this, please, Philip. What are the big threats we face? Obviously, we're seeing what's happening in Ukraine. In your view, how big a threat is China? China thinks a huge threat, but um, again, China has not got combat experience. They shy away from combat, um, uh, and therefore you know, they're, they're more a threat from an economic and a political perspective, because they can plan things in multiple generations. We plan things in parliamentary times or presidential times, or more likely well, what tomorrow morning's tweet or headlines are going to be. And that's democracy, and it's got its upsides, yeah. and it does perhaps yeah. in terms of long-term planning exactly. have its downsides. Exactly. Thank you very much indeed for joining me on this anniversary. Yes, 40 years ago today, the Falkland Islands were liberated. Now, closer to home, the Supreme Court have ruled that the aeroplane can go to Rwanda. Uh, it's on the runway as we speak. I think there are only seven of the 130 people still on it. Uh, Boris Johnson was interviewed on this subject earlier on today when he was at the National Arboretum. You predicted yourself that there would be all these legal challenges and true enough here we're seeing them is it not time to come out of the U european convention of human rights to be able to set your own rules to stack the odds in your favor then when these legal challenges come about there's certainly the case that uh the legal uh fraternity sorority whatever their the legal world is very good at picking up uh, ways of uh, of trying to stop uh, the government from uh, upholding what we think is is a, a sensible law and trying to we're trying to make a distinction between uh, legal pathways to the UK which we support we want people to be able to come here in fear of their lives but we want them to do it legally and safely and that's why we have all the safe and legal routes that are open to to people what we want to do is to show the people traffickers that uh, they're, they're breaking the law they're risking people's lives and it won't work anyway well, whenever that point gets raised about ECHR or the Human Rights Act, Boris always gives a very evasive answer. He always says, well, at some point we may have to deal with that legislation. Well, that plane, you can see on your pictures, those watching on television, is there. And let's say it does take off with seven people. Well, all well and good. But today, several hundred people 
across the English Channel in small dinghies, and that when there were over 100 yesterday, and over 100 the day before that as well. Uh, you know, we are well through the 10,000 mark already this year. We're headed towards an absolutely huge number, and you know, I want this Rwanda policy to work. I really, genuinely want the Rwanda policy to work. Uh, but when there are hundreds coming in on a day like today, if seven get removed, it isn't going to make much difference. And you can see those of you watching here, that was today in Dover. That's before first light and that lifeboat absolutely filled with people. This problem isn't going away, but if substantial numbers did go to Rwanda, it would make a difference. I don't believe any of it can happen all the while we signed up to ECHR. One or two more of your thoughts. John says, never trust the French. Well, of course, those missiles that sunk the boats were French-made exocets. One viewer says, I'm not sure we've learned anything. Just look at the state we left Afghanistan is in. Barry says, I'm no military expert, but our response to war in Ukraine would indicate that this time we're ahead of the game. Well, do we learn lessons from history? I think we learn some, perhaps we don't quite learn enough. We've talked very much about 40 years ago, those battles on land and at sea. We're going to go back a little bit further in a moment. We're going to go back to June 1944. We're going to go to Omaha Beach. I'm going to be joined by a friend of mine, Steve Molnikoff. He's just shy of his 103rd birthday. We'll talk about what happened in Normandy all those years ago. It's time for Talking Pints, and I've been joined by a very special guest this evening. He's someone I've got to know over the course of the last few years, and I'm proud to call a friend. His name is Steve Melnikoff, and he's a remarkable chap. You know, he's just come to the United Kingdom on Cunard Line, on the Queen Mary, and even though he's nearly approaching his 103rd birthday, he, you, Steve, you've been dancing every yes. night all the way over. Yes, we do, yes. It's one of my pleasures, and uh, I do... Yeah, I do the ballroom, and and then after that, uh, we go over to disco. So you go to disco? Yeah, we do that too, yeah. It's now, I've seen a series of photographs of you on Queen Mary. <laughs> you seem to be dancing with a different woman every evening, is that right? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I have to say, you're, whenever I've met you, you're always full of energy and right. vigor. And if you're not dancing, of course, you know, one of your great loves in life is, of course, the game of golf, isn't it? That's right. I still play, yeah. And not as much as I used to, but a little selective. And I don't hit the ball so far. And Tim wants to buy a new set of clubs. I said, what I need is a new body. <laughs> <laughs> but you're still playing. You're still enjoying the game. I, I do very much, yes. And you've been breaking your age for many years at golf, haven't you? Yes, I haven't done it this year, but uh, most years I've been able to, before the virus, yeah, I, I started about 80. But that will be on a special day when everything went right, just yeah. when a pro shoots about a 61, <laughs> and, and I'm shooting 100, right. <laughs> Steve, it's a very different boat journey I was going to talk to you about than the Cunard and coming over, which you're now one of the great celebrities, and they love having you on board, which is terrific. But I'm just wondering, you know, you're, you're, you're a man in his mid-twenties, you've been trained, you're ready to fight, and it's June, 1944, you're going in, you're climbing down rope ladders, yes. you're getting into a landing craft, you're going in to Omaha Beach. What do you see, what do you feel at that moment? Well, we had training and 
uh, in the States, we had 17 weeks. We came to England and we trained for another five months in St. Ives. Love and so we were well prepared. My division even had an assault, a bit of beach training at, at Slapton Sands. Mm -hmm. I missed it by a month. But uh, yeah, we trained. And to be truthful, I can't tell you exactly my emotion, but I'm sure I was apprehensive. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, and the scenes on Omaha must have been beyond description. Yes, yeah, well, there were there were tanks that were busted up and uh, bodies all over because the 116th uh, regiment went in first and the 115th second and we were the third one. So yeah, we saw a lot of that that was there. It was a horrific battle, yes, indeed it was. Yes, yeah, so by the time you got there, bad stuff had happened already. Yes. But you've just got to get your head down and keep going. Yeah. And that's yeah. what you trained for. Yeah. It, it was a tough day because many of the things that they planned didn't come exactly one because there was a current went from west to east and it set many of the units to the wrong places and so forth. One play, one, one was sent to the right place. That was 116th, uh, a B company. And very unfortunately, it was a National Guard outfit. They were all from the same area, and they, they had horrendous casualties. Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, the film Save It Private Ryan was about one family losing a lot yeah. of people. And it kind of, I guess it kind of brought Omaha Beach to a modern audience in a, in, in a very dramatic Steven Spielberg way. You've been back to Normandy. Yes, many times. Many times. And, and I've visited Omaha, and the beach is pretty much as it was the American memorial and cemetery is, I mean, astonishing in terms of the way that it's been, the way that it's been put together, the way that it's maintained. There's 8,000 people there. Right. 8,000 people in that beachside cemetery. How did you come through it, Steve? Well, whenever I come to France and Normandy, I know those are the people that fought, that are real heroes. I wear this outfit. It's a respect to those people and it's a honor those people because those were the people that fought the army, the navy, married all mixed in together, even a few ladies, and they're the ones that fought and I respect them and I go to honor them because that's the reason that I'm here right now is because those people made it possible to be here. And I also tell that it's also the reason why we have had this 78 years of peace and prosperity because of that by the greatest generation. And that price they pay. And yet, of course, it isn't just about Omaha Beach, because once you're off the beach and you're into Normandy, you're fighting hedgerow by hedgerow, field by field. I mean, the Germans didn't turn and run. They fought right. all the way back. And you kind of 10 days in, you were very seriously hurt, weren't you? Yes. Uh, yeah, our mission was to capture St. Lowe and uh, our division was, was, that was a mission because that was a city that was the main communication with, with Germany to the east of France, the ra railroads, roads, and telegraph telephone all went through that city. And we wanted, but that, that would have cut off a lot of the supplies. And we were supposed to take, say, a little five days, but it took a month and a half. But yeah, uh, we, we went at a place, it was called Hill 108. My, my regiment was right on that bridge, and that was our, our target. And first day, we, we went as far as four miles. But the sec second day, they put more troops against us, and it was a difficult day. Yeah, I was injured on the morning of the second day, the 17th, and I was sent back to England. You took a bullet through the throat? Yeah, yes, right, right here, yeah. And uh, 
Yeah, well... Uh, he just must have missed all the important bits. Well, I did what I had to do, you know. My, my lieutenant was killed right alongside of me by a machine gun. There was the same machine gunner. And you have to do what you do. And I just bandaged up, I lay down, bandaged, and walked to the aid station. And they flew me immediately to England for surgery and stuff. And for recuperation. Yeah. 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 But before long, you're going back to France to right. rejoin the 29th Division. Right. And you keep on going. Yes, we keep on going. You keep yeah. on going. It never ends. Does, I mean, how much fighting is there? Are there big gaps in between battles? How does it work, Steve? Well, in our case, the 29th Division was constant combat. The only time we stopped when it was a river or there was some really heavy fortification that we'd had to have help. Otherwise, we went through uh, Omaha Beach and northern France and uh, then into uh, Central Europe and then uh, actually Rhineland. And we were there when we uh, met the Russians at the, at, the, at the Elbe River. Yeah, that was an extraordinary moment. It must have been an extraordinary moment. And it was interesting. I was talking to one of your veteran colleagues who was a prisoner of war. And he was saying how relieved he was to be liberated by the British right. <laughs> and not by the Russians. But for many, many, many people, they were living in fear, weren't they, of the Russians coming? Yes. Uh, actually, I'll just say this. Uh, we, we reached the uh, Elbe, Elbe River in, in late uh, February. I mean, uh, no, no, April. And we beat the Russians there. And we actually had a rocket division that sent people over to, they wanted to center, surrender to somewhere. Yep. And so my regiment accepted 11,000 rocket division. And these were the rockets being fired These were the London. guys who were, those yeah. are the rockets that were fired, and these were the experts, and they surrendered to our, our regiment, and it took us two days to get them all over the river. And not only them, but all the Germans were coming over that river, and civilians, because they did not want to be captured by the Russians yeah. because of the treatment the Russians had prior to that, yes. And then VE Day. VE Day, where were you on VE Day when it ended? D, we were still, we had a fire, so we had to clear. We sort of removed the people say, how did I celebrate? We were still collecting prisoners and Germans and so forth. Besides that, it wasn't that you celebrate with. We're out in the, we're out in the field. <laughs> but yeah, but we were glad that it was over. But we were a little bit apprehensive because we knew now there's a good chance we'd have been sent to the Pacific. But instead, we were sent to the Bremerhaven Enclave and we were on occupation for six months before it was my turn to go home. I mean, was it shocking to see the devastation in German cities, to see what had happened? It was, it was. I, I had a mission where I delivered prisoners later on during, to Hamburg and it was nothing but brick and mortars for Mile after mile after mile, yeah, and uh, yeah. Well, uh, it was another case where the 8th Air Force did a great job for us, and they, they were told what to bomb, and some people said, should they bomb this? They bombed with the factories, the ball-bearing factories, and the factories they were doing, uh, the, supplying the outfits that did the most damage to us, yeah. Does mankind ever learn, Steve? Do we ever learn? No, I don't think so. And uh, I, uh, I live ap apprehension about what's going on right now mm. because uh, I just have a sort of a feeling that this is almost a repeat of 1939. 
with Putin taking more ground. Yes, each time. A little bit at a time and challenging us and we're sort of backing up. We don't know where to go or this and that. Uh, we can't send this. I would send it all. Uh, you can't fight a war with them doing everything they want and we're supposed to be restricted. But. But, you know, I'm not in charge. You've, you've, got, you've got your... Shame you're not, really, because I'm not sure Mr Biden's in charge at times, are you? Yeah. I mean, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and it, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk about in the world today. Steve, I want to ask you, after your experiences of all you went through, you know, Normandy, through Europe, you were wounded, seriously wounded once, you were wounded a second time, I think, right. as that campaign went on. How do you return to civilian life after all that? How do you get back to any sense of normality? Well, let me say this. When we came back, we could not talk too much about it at the start because our parents and our relatives and friends were all working over the clock, women and men, in the mines, the steel mills, the farmers. were literally supplying the whole world the armament and the food and whatever to do the war. Mm. We even supplied the Russians. And so... We couldn't just really, you know, so we just went quietly back to work. And, and I, honestly, there were many American soldiers that we could not talk about the war. It took me 40 years before I was able to, to really talk about it. And first time I come back to Europe was 60 years after the war. So you kept it all bottled up? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, we did. I was able to open up because after 40 years, I met my sergeant and we had a, fortunately, four men that, that were the same company in the 29th Division and C Company, and we would have uh, meetings. One of them was my sergeant, and a sergeant's not your friend when you're private, but later on we were both tech sergeants, and we would have lunch every Tuesday for about 30 years before he passed away. Yeah. Wow. He passed away to underrun. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And Steve, you got your 103rd birthday just around the corner. Um, you're dancing into the small hours. Uh, Tim, who's looking after you on this trip, tells me you're on parade at 7 yeah. o'clock every morning. Right. Uh, you're playing golf. Mm -hmm. uh, you're full of energy, mm -hmm. opinions, thoughts, yes. reflections. Uh, you love being... I've seen you. I've been with you in the hotel bar in Washington <laughs> when all the girls are right. around. What, I mean, what's your secret? How, how have you got to this age well, no, and I, to be I, in the state you know, in the good nick you're in? I have a, always had a positive attitude, and uh, I'm sure I have good genes. And over the years, I think uh, I lived in a time where the food was more wholesome than it is now. Ooh. And you do not, re you, you may retire from your job, but you can't retire from life. You decide when you want to retire, what, 62, 65, but you, you have to do something. You've got to work the brain, you've got to work the body. And if you don't, you go downhill. So you have to keep going. I did that. I had a little business for a while, a hobby business. And I'm still doing stuff, playing golf. And, and just remember, I play golf, but I don't work out. I play golf. That's, that's what it is. The other job you've got, and it's a very important job, is to keep alive the memory mm -hmm. of the price people paid for freedom, to educate a younger generation yes that actually all these great things haven't come for free they've come with great sacrifice and i can't think of anybody yeah. to go around and to spread that story mm -hmm. and to and to honor 
the memory of those that you fought with. And Steve, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on this program, and I'm very proud to know you. Oh, I really I am. want to thank you. I'm glad to do this. Thank you. Thank you Brilliant. very much. Steve Malikov, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>